how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Mark. Well, now let's uh, start this study in Mark's Gospel by refreshing your mind with a few things that we said when we looked at Matthew's Gospel, but you may not have seen that video, so let's just run over. A Gospel is a very different kind of literature to anything else. It's not a biography, it's not a history, in fact it's a news bulletin essentially. Somebody has made the whole Bible into newspapers and uh, that's really what it should be. The Bible really is one big newspaper, it's about news, but about news that's epoch-making, that has changed the world, and a gospel is essentially a news bulletin, and therefore it's something that should always be read aloud as news bulletins are. Well now, going through the stages in which the gospels develop, you know we have four gospels, why do we have four? Well, one reason is that when a famous person has died, the interest in that person develops through three stages. The first stage, almost immediately, somebody writes an account of what the person did, and you find obituary notices in the Times of what the person did. But after a bit, that moves to another phase of interest, namely what he said, and his speeches and letters may be collected, and the interest moves from what he did to what he said. But at a later stage, people write a different kind of biography, trying to get inside the man. What made him tick? What was his character like? What was his temperament? What was his motivation? And they become more interested in what he was. Now, interestingly enough, the four Gospels fit that pattern. The first Gospel to be written, which we're going to look at in a moment, is Mark, and he is primarily telling us what Jesus did. In Mark's Gospel, Jesus is action man and I'll tell you why in a moment. And then Luke and Matthew came along and they were more interested in what Jesus said. Matthew was more interested in Jesus' preaching and Luke was more interested in his parables, but they both packed an awful lot of what Jesus said into their Gospels. Finally along came John and he was far more interested in the person of Jesus, what he was and therefore, in a sense, Jesus from the inside, whereas Matthew, Mark and Luke are Jesus from the outside, as people saw and heard what he did and said. But John gets right inside Jesus, and somehow you understand who Jesus was much better in the fourth Gospel. So this is a natural developing interest which uh, happens with everybody famous who dies. But then we can go a little deeper, because we really have four dimensions of Jesus, uh, they've written from a different angle, and so we have four different insights into Jesus from the four Gospel writers, and that makes up a complete portrait. And so we say that Matthew saw Jesus as the King of the Jews, Mark saw him as the Son of Man, Luke saw him as the Saviour of the world, and John saw him as the Son of God. That makes a complete picture of Jesus, four-dimensional portrait of Jesus. Put them all together and you begin to understand this amazing person, who incidentally has 250 names and titles. Nobody has ever lived who had as many as that. 
It's a good devotional exercise to write them all down sometime. Most people can remember about 30 to 40, but there are 250. No one in history has ever had so many names and titles. What an amazing person Jesus was. But we can also look at the four Gospels from yet a different angle. We've been looking at them from the writer's angle. Let's look at them from the reader's angle. Who were they intended for? Because that would shape these Gospels quite a lot. Not just who wrote them with their different angle or insight, but who were they wanting to read their Gospel? And here we have a profound difference between two of them and the other two. Two of them were written for Christian believers to build them up in the faith, to give them a stronger foundation in their beliefs about Jesus, and two of them were written for unbelievers. And that makes all the difference to what is said in the Gospel, because the context of every statement in the Bible is the book in which it occurs. And we need to put every statement in the Bible, every verse in the Bible, back into the book in which it's written. So Matthew and John are written for believers. But again, there's a difference. Matthew was written for young believers, for new Christians. It's the ideal gospel for new converts to go through. And it'll give them a real insight into the kingdom that they've now entered with those five blocks of teaching in Matthew. The first is the lifestyle of the kingdom. The second is the mission of the kingdom. The third is the growth of the kingdom. The fourth is the community of the kingdom. And the fifth discourse in Matthew is the future of the kingdom. Five wonderful subjects for new converts to study. John, however, was written for older Christians. He says that. He said, these are written that you may go on believing that Jesus is the Son of God and that going on believing you may go on having eternal life. It was written to keep older Christians going and keep them firm and established in the faith. Whereas Mark and Luke are clearly both written for unbelievers and this affects if you're going to give a gospel out to somebody, are they a believer or an unbeliever? That should decide which gospel you should give and John's gospel is probably the worst to give to unbelievers and yet it's the most used in evangelism. Isn't that strange? I think that's only because people hope that others will read as far as John 3.16. But uh, there it is. So we are studying now the two Gospels that were written for unbelievers, not for believers. And therefore these two are the two you should consider giving to somebody who's interested and wants to know a bit about Jesus, who he was, what he said, what he did. And so we begin with Mark's Gospel. That's the first major study this time. The author, like the authors of all four Gospels, doesn't name himself. They all drop a hint in somewhere as to who wrote it, but they don't name themselves as author. It's almost as if they're saying, we want the whole attention to be on Jesus, not on us. We want you to look at him, not on us. And so Mark doesn't tell us that this is the Gospel of Mark. We know it is, but he doesn't draw attention to the fact. Well, what do we know about him? Well, the first surprising thing is that he had three names and one of them you will never have heard, I'm quite sure. You've heard Mark. Well, that's a Latin name, Marcus. And it tells us that though he was Jewish, he did have official Roman connections in some way. And we know that his family had quite a big house in Jerusalem, was a family of some standing, 
had at least one maidservant. So here's a man with some Roman or Latin connections that his family should give him a Latin name, Marcus. But his Hebrew name, for he was Jewish, was Johanan. We know that as John, John Mark, Johanan. And that means Yahweh has shown grace. God has shown grace. So perhaps he was born on a Tuesday. Tuesday's child is full of grace, I'm sure. That poem wasn't around then. So we have John Mark and his third name, you would never guess. His third name, I must get it right, is Colobodactylos. John Mark Colobodactylos. And some of you might just guess what that means. Dactyl, finger. And in fact, that word means stubby-fingered. So the poor baby <laughs> was stubby-fingered, and yet it's from those stubby fingers that we got the first gospel ever to be written. God can use stubby fingers. So here are his three names. One is a nickname, uh, which is Greek, and one is a Latin name, and one is a Hebrew name. When Jesus died, those were the three languages on the cross, Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. And John Mark had those three names and he records those three languages above the cross when Jesus died. His mother was Mary in Hebrew, Miriam, and we assume later that his father died, though his father may have been the man who carried the pitcher on his head when Jesus was making secret arrangements for the Last Supper and said, go into the city of Jerusalem and when you see a man carrying a pitcher, you will know, just follow him, and he'll show you the room that's been prepared. And almost certainly that upper room where the Last Supper was held was in Mark's house. And this is where we get the little hint in the Gospel as to who wrote it. Because let's uh, just transfer our attention away to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus on the last night before he died was praying in agony. In Mark's Gospel alone there is a most unusual little incident that while the disciples were sleeping and Jesus was praying and then the temple guards came and arrested Jesus, it says they grabbed hold of a young man who was dressed in nothing but a bed sheet and he fled, leaving the sheet in the soldier's hands, and fled naked into the night. Now who was that? It must be John Mark Stubby-Fingered. <laughs> and he must have followed them, grabbed a bedsheet and followed them to Gethsemane and hidden behind one of these old olive trees and saw the whole thing. That's how we know what Jesus prayed. Jesus was not likely to have told anyone about that prayer. But Mark heard it, Abba, Abba, please take this cup from me. And it's all down there in Mark's Gospel. And he's just saying in that little incident, I was there, I was there. He ran back home naked, <laughs> left his bedsheet in the hands of the temple guards. Well, that's the young man we're talking about. As a youth, he had seen Jesus, obviously, and yet he was never a leading figure in the New Testament. He's mentioned frequently, but always as a number two, always as someone's personal assistant, someone's PA. And the Kingdom of God has great need of number twos. There are plenty of number ones around. Do you know what I mean? But needs faithful people who carry the bags of others. 
and John Mark was such a man. He was actually a PA to four very great Christian leaders in the early church. Firstly, to his older cousin. He had an older cousin called Barnabas, and Barnabas brought this young man on and trained him and gave him jobs to do. And from Barnabas, Mark became an assistant to no less than Paul. Years later in Rome, Mark met Luke. And in fact, there is a very direct connection between Mark's Gospel and Luke's Gospel, as we shall see. And then finally, Mark became personal assistant to Peter. Peter arrived in Rome after Paul and used John Mark as his interpreter. Mark knew Latin. Peter didn't. Galilean fishermen were unlearned and ignorant men. And so when Peter came to Rome, he had to speak through an interpreter, as I often do. We call them interrupters. And they're very naughty people. They steal half your time, but we couldn't do without them. And so Peter came and used John Mark as his interrupter, his interpreter, and he translated Peter's preaching into Latin in Rome. And that is how the first gospel came to be written. Because we know that one day some members of the congregation of the church in Rome came to young John Mark and they said, Mark, would you do something for us, please? He said, what? They said, well, you know Peter's preaching and we'd like to get it in more permanent form. We'd like you to write down what Peter tells us about Jesus because the way he's going on, we may not have him with us much longer. He's really going to fall foul of the authorities because this was in the days of Nero. And so they said, please get down Peter's preaching in writing because he was one of the closest to Jesus and we, we want it written down. Well, Mark went to Peter and Peter wasn't at all keen. The record says he neither hindered nor encouraged Mark to do this. So he was saying, you can if you like, <laughs> I'm not bothered. And I have a certain sympathy here because years and years ago a man in my congregation came and said, would you mind if I taped your sermons? And I had the same reaction as Peter. I said, well, I'll neither hinder nor encourage you, you can if you like. Little did we dream what that was going to lead to and little did Mark or Peter dream that his book would be studied in High Lee 2,000 years later or read all over the world. It's astonishing how things happen in the kingdom that you're not really aware of at the time, but God has planned it and it's going to reach far and wide. And so the congregation came to Mark and said, write down what Peter's telling us about Jesus, please. We want to keep it. And Peter said, well, you can if you like, I'm not bothered. And Mark, stubby-fingered Mark, began to write and you've got the result in your hands. It has actually been called from time to time the Gospel of Peter precisely because you can hear Peter preaching. Bear in mind that almost all the New Testament was spoken before it was written and that's why it's so lively and that's why sometimes the grammar's not so good because it is a spoken record rather than a written and therefore is meant to be read aloud. Good news is to be announced, not just thought about, and uh, the Gospel is meant to be read aloud. And when you do, it's exciting. 
Some years ago, I remember my wife and I went to a theatre in London, the Rainbow Theatre, I think it was, down by the Thames there, and uh, we went to hear a one-man show by an actor called Alec McCowan. I'm sure some of you have heard of him. And for two and a half hours, all he did, he was alone on the stage with a chair and a table, and he held the audience spellbound for two and a half hours by reciting Mark's Gospel. That's all he did. Remember the Archbishop of Canterbury was two rows in front of us, lapping it up. But you know, for months that theatre was jammed out, that it then had to be moved to a bigger theatre in the West End. And all he did was recite Mark's Gospel. And thousands upon thousands were paying pounds just to go and hear it and see it. And Alec McCowan said that when he was a little boy, his grandfather, who was a godly man, made him kneel down on the carpet and his grandfather laid hands on him and said, one day you will read the Gospel to thousands. And years and years later he did it. I don't even know if he's a Christian, but he tried Mark's Gospel and just held audiences spellbound. It tells you that Peter could hold audiences spellbound as he told people about Jesus. And dear old Peter, I call Peter Action Man. He was so impetuous, I can identify with him. He had foot and mouth disease as well. And every time he opened his mouth, he put his foot in it again and again. But he was so impetuous. He was the one who wanted to walk on the water. None of the others did. But he was the one who wanted to walk on the water. He was the one who jumped into the water when John said, that's Jesus on the shore. He was the one who was tired of waiting for Jesus to appear after the resurrection, said, I'm going fishing. Peter could not sit still. And you get this breathless excitement all the way through Mark's Gospel. There's one word that comes 41 times. Immediately, immediately, or in the older version, straightway he entered into a boat, and straightway the boat was at the other side. Apparently crossed the Sea of Galilee eight miles in two seconds. And everything is immediately and immediately, and, and you're carried along with breathless excitement. Well, that's how Peter preached, and Mark has faithfully recorded this, and it makes Mark's Gospel the most vivid and the most alive of all four. It's the most exciting to read aloud. I'm afraid Peter wasn't interested in long sermons, so he didn't record them. There's only one in the whole of Mark, and it must have left a deep impression on Peter for him to remember it and record it. So Mark doesn't concentrate on Jesus' teaching. There's no Sermon on the Mount here. It's just action, one thing after another. Excited, enthusiastic, this is Peter. And uh, the different temperaments of the Christians in the early church come through even in the New Testament. This book concentrates on Peter's weaknesses and not his strengths. Now isn't that interesting? It's in this book that we find, get behind me, Satan. But you don't find, you are Peter and I will build my church on this rock. So Peter was constantly sharing his weaknesses, the times he let the Lord down, but he never boasted. It's interesting, isn't it? It's the other Gospels where you find Peter's good points, but here you find his weaknesses. And here we have Peter's denial but not his reinstatement. You have to read John's Gospel to find where Peter is restored three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? You only have the denial here. 
It's another proof that this is the Gospel of Peter that John Mark has written down. Then there is Peter's interest in Jesus' miracles. There are far more miracles in Mark by comparison with Matthew, Luke or John. Here are the figures. For example, there are 18 miracles in Mark, whereas the parables, there are only four in Mark, whereas there are 18 in Matthew and Luke 19. So you see that Peter's interest was in the miracles, not the parables. His interest was in what Jesus did and not in what he said. Furthermore, we have here Peter's ignorance as well as his knowledge. Peter did not know how or where Jesus was born. Never once in his speeches in Acts or in his letters does he betray any knowledge whatever of Jesus' birth. Peter's knowledge began at the Jordan River when Peter and Andrew were baptised and Jesus was baptised and John introduced them to Jesus. That's where his knowledge began and it ended with the resurrection. And that is why in Mark you have no Christmas story. You have no boyhood stories. It begins where Peter's knowledge began and Peter couldn't preach the Christmas story because he was ignorant of it and never mentioned it once. So we have clear proof, I think, that this Gospel comes from Peter. Now having said that, Mark has very cleverly constructed this Gospel and fitted it together and he has given a framework to the Gospel story which was used by Matthew and Luke. Let me try and show you something. Here's a chart. It will look very complicated when you first see it, but uh, all will be revealed. Why do they make charts so big and so cumbersome? Let's look at it. Here we have represented the Gospels of Matthew, Mark and Luke. And Mark's material is in pink with a very few occasional bits of green in it. Can you see that? The pink is what is common to all three Gospels. The green is what can only be found in Mark. So that at one glance you can see that Matthew has used all of Mark and so has Luke used Mark but they've used him in different ways. Matthew has split Mark into little bits and mixed them up with his material, whereas Luke has taken blocks of Mark and used whole chunks. Now, of course, there's been some debate. Did Matthew and Mark use Luke and exp uh, Matthew and Luke use Mark and expand him, or did Mark abbreviate Matthew and Luke? Well, the likelihood is that these two expanded Mark and that they both had Mark to use. The other colours out of interest, the blue is what Matthew has on his own and didn't get from anyone else and the yellow is what Luke has on his own. Notice the Christmas story in Luke and the early parts of Matthew. Sorry, the blue is not Matthew. White is Matthew on his own. Blue is what Matthew and Luke have but Mark doesn't. So it's a very complicated business. But you can see that basically Mark's Gospel has been used by Matthew and Luke, the pink.
and Mark's basic outline of the story of Jesus is the one that Matthew and Luke both use. And this scene is the crucial scene in that, but we'll come back to that. Let me go on to the structure of Mark's Gospel. I've tried to put it in a kind of symbolic way, uh, and yet it's not too abstract. Let's look at this. Mark's Gospel covers three years, the three years of Jesus' public ministry, but there's a very clear shape to the Gospel. It all builds up over the first two and a half years, and then in the last six months everything sort of flows down from that. There's a watershed, if you like. The story starts at the Jordan River, which is the lowest point on the Earth's surface. Here's the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee, and the story moves from the Jordan River to Galilee, and then literally they're going physically uphill all the way. And finally they go to the highest point in the Promised Land, and that's Mount Hermon, at the foot of which is this little town of Caesarea Philippi. And the whole story over two and a half years is building up to that crisis. Two and a half years it took to reach this climax. As soon as that point is reached, Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem, and it's downhill all the way, literally, down from that high point to Judea, through Perea, which is the bit of land on the east side of the Jordan, so from Mount Hermon in the north they go the east side of the Jordan through Perea to Judea, where Jesus dies on a cross and three days later rises again. Now what is so important about this? What was Jesus waiting for? Everything seems to be building up to a crisis and then suddenly everything takes an entirely different course. So the last six months are very different from the first two and a half years, and in fact the last week becomes all important. Well, before we look at that, let's just see that in the Galilee section of Mark's Gospel, which covers the two and a half years and the journey from the Jordan up to Hermon, there are three phases of ministry, and these three phases are the themes of Mark's Gospel. The first phase is where Jesus was very popular. Thousands came to be healed, and he was the talk of the whole country. So you have this acclamation of Jesus from chapters 1 to 3, where Jesus is riding high, big crowds, very successful. And then we have a second phase when opposition begins. The first point of difference was over the Sabbath, but it soon built up, and very soon Jesus had made more enemies than friends. So the third phase began, chapter 7 to 9, where Jesus concentrated on twelve people, twelve men, and from thousands he spent time with just twelve. So we have two and a half years covered in just chapters 1 to 9. We have chapter 10 covering six months, chapters 11 to 16 covering this last week. Now we've got to ask what it was, what happened around here that changed the direction of Jesus' ministry so totally? Let's go back to the picture we had earlier. 
The left-hand picture is taken at the foot of Mount Hermon, a place called Caesarea Philippi. It's a most remarkable place. This is the beginning of the River Jordan, and this river is about 30 to 40 feet wide, coming straight out of a cliff at the foot of Mount Hermon, and it just literally seems water from the rock. Jordan is the river that starts nowhere and finishes nowhere, and it's a most amazing sight. Actually, what explains it is that the snow on the top of Mount Hermon melts and comes down a crack inside the mountain and comes out of a hole underneath the surface of the river. So it just looks like a, a river as wide as this room or wider coming straight out of the cliff. Now you would imagine that a strange natural phenomena like that would gather around itself superstition and religious cults, and sure enough it's been a centre of pagan worship for centuries. And above the water coming out of the cliff, I don't know if you can see it too clearly, there's a cave here, and here in the cliff face there are alcoves carved, and just little alcoves, some of you have seen them. And in those alcoves they used to put statues of gods, and two particular statues I want to talk about. One was a statue of the Greek god Pan, and to this day this place is called Panias, or Banias. The other was a statue of Caesar, and that was put there by one of Herod's four sons called Philip, who was given this part of land when King Herod died. And so he called the place after himself, and the Roman Emperor. He called it Caesarea Philippi. That's how it got that double name. So here we had a statue of the Greek god Pan, who was a god who was supposed to have appeared as a mortal man on earth. And we have a statue of Caesar who is a man who is already being called a god. And one day Jesus took the twelve disciples to this very place, and said, Who do men say that I am? Now can you see now why it had to be here? With a statue behind him of a God who came as a man, and a man who was worshipped as God, Jesus said, Now what about me? Where do I fit? And they said, Well, many people think you're a reincarnation. I mean, you're only in your thirties, and yet you're so clever. You must have lived before as a great man. Oh, he said, very interesting, who did I, who was I in my previous existence? And they said, some say Jeremiah, John the Baptist. Who do you say that I am? And he'd waited two and a half years to ask that question, and it was Peter who answered it. He said, you have lived before, but not down here. You lived up there, didn't you? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. He was the first man to say that. I hope you know who was the first woman to say it a few weeks later, do you? It was Martha. She wasn't just good cooking. She was the first woman to say it, but Peter was the first man. And uh, Jesus now was able to say to Peter, now I can do two things, and he mentioned two things that he had never mentioned before. He said, now I can build my church. Now he'd never mentioned a church up to that moment. He preached, he'd healed, he'd fed the multitude, stilled the storm, but he'd never mentioned that he was going to build a church. Now he said, I can do it, because Jesus can't build his church until people know who he is.
the church is built up of people who know who he is. And that's when the church began. And with that lovely play on Peter's name, Peter means rock. Simon or Simon was his first name and that means reed shaken in the wind. But Jesus said, you're Simon, you're a reed, I'm going to make you a rock. Lovely little touch. So as soon as Peter said, I know who you are, I can build my church and I can die on the cross. And it was the first time he'd mentioned the cross. Been with them two and a half years, never given a hint that he was going to die, not a hint. Now he says, I can go to the cross. And that's when Peter put his foot in it. He has just called Jesus the King, the Christ. He said, but I'm not going to let you do that. Who's King? You know, you are the King, but I'm not going to let you die. No fear. You can build the church on me, yes, but I'm not going to let you go to the cross. That's when Jesus had to rebuke him very seriously. Now that was the watershed up at the foot of Mount Hermon and it was then that Jesus took Peter, James and John up to the top of the mountain above the snow line for there's always snow on Mount Hermon and it was there that Peter said his clothes became brighter than any soap powder on earth could make them. He actually used the word detergent but, uh, or fuller which was the equivalent in those days and that was because the light was shining through the clothes from the inside and they saw his glory and from then on it was straight to the cross, straight down south to die. So that is the shape of Mark's Gospel and it was picked up both by Matthew and Luke and they built on it. Well now let's say some things about Mark's Gospel as a whole. What is its value as a Gospel to us? Number one, it gives a clear picture of the person of Christ. I don't know if you've ever noticed this in Mark's Gospel. Let me just read an odd verse or two. I won't tell you where they're from. I'm picking them all from the first nine chapters. He would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning, see that you don't tell this to anyone. And he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. And he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this. And he did not want anyone to know it. And Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone. Now none of that is in Matthew or Luke or John. But for that first two and a half years, Jesus forbade anyone to discuss who he was. And then after two and a half years, he says, now who am I? Who do you think I am? Can you see the way he prepared them? He wanted them to come to their own conclusion for themselves. He didn't want them to pick it up from evil spirits or from anybody else. He wanted them to get it from his Father as to who he was. So the messianic secret, as it's called by biblical scholars, is a feature of Mark's Gospel. Mark says he kept it secret, forbade them to tell anyone 
and this way he carefully restrained their thinking until he'd felt they'd seen and heard enough. We call this moment at the foot of Mount Hermon the Great Confession, and it was that that changed the whole scene. And therefore the second great theme of Mark's Gospel is the work of Christ. The most remarkable feature of Mark is the emphasis on the death of Christ. Somebody has said Mark's Gospel is like an express train slowing up. He gallops through the first two and a half years in a few pages. Then he slows down and the next few pages cover months. Then he slows down and the next few pages cover a week. Then the next few pages cover a day and finally hours and you stop at Golgotha so that he's racing through but slowing up all the time until finally he just shows you Jesus on a cross. He says that's what he came for. And there's a remarkable emphasis on both the human and the divine aspect of Jesus' death. The human aspect is this. Jesus, of course, was tried for blasphemy, the same thing as Salman Rushdie's been tried for and found guilty. And as in Muslim law, so in Mosaic law, blasphemy deserves death. So here is Jesus on trial for blasphemy, for saying that he was God, and in Jewish law that is a capital crime and deserves death. And they tried to get witnesses to agree as to what they'd heard Jesus say about himself. They couldn't agree. And finally the judge did an illegal thing. He said to Jesus, I charge you, I adjure you by the living God, tell me who you are. And of course Jesus as a Jew had to speak when adjured by the living God. And he said, are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? He said, I am, I am. And the judge tore his clothes and said, you heard it. What's your verdict? And 70 people said, death. The problem was that they couldn't put someone to death officially. They were occupied by the Romans. So they had to get the Roman signature for the death sentence. But in Roman law, blasphemy is not a crime. So what were they to do? There was only one thing to do, to change the crime. And by the time they got Jesus to Pilate, he was being charged with treason and not blasphemy. And it's Mark who brings this out so clearly. The treason was not that he said, I am God, but that he said, I am king, king of the Jews. And that's the human side of the death of Christ. It was unjust from beginning to end. He was not guilty of blasphemy or of treason, but that's how they got him. The divine side, however, also comes out in Mark that Jesus was sure from the very beginning that he had come to die and to give his life a ransom for many, that it had to happen, that he had to be betrayed, that God had planned it that way and there was no avoiding it and Peter mustn't try to tempt Jesus to run away from the cross. So you get this very vivid description of the person of Christ from here on and the work of Christ on the cross for us. That makes it a very suitable gospel to give to unbelievers. There is one other facet of Mark's gospel which is worth noting, and that is there are two key words all the way through, fear and faith, fear and faith, and they go from beginning to end, and it's as if it's facing people with the choice 
What's your response to this story? Fear or faith? Do you remember the stilling of the storm in Mark? And Jesus stood up in the boat and the disciples said, don't you care, we're going to drown? And Jesus said, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And all the way through, this is a theme that Mark keeps bringing out, don't be afraid, believe, don't be afraid, believe. And even at the end where Jesus appears at the resurrection, Mark is frank enough to say the disciples didn't even believe when they saw Jesus and he had to rebuke them for their unbelief. And one of his favourite sayings again and again was, why are you afraid? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Just believe. And so we have here a picture of the person of Christ, the work of Christ, and the response of faith rather than fear when the supernatural element enters in. Well, that's why I would always choose Mark to give to an unbeliever. If they've got no knowledge of Jesus, then here is the very basic knowledge that they need, the person of Christ, the work of Christ, and their response to both. Now before we finish Mark, there is one thing that uh, I must deal with because there'll be many questions about it if I don't, and that is that Mark's Gospel has a very peculiar ending. It actually ends in the middle of a sentence. In the early manuscript copies we have of the Gospel of Mark, it finishes right in the middle of verse 8 of chapter 16, and it finishes with the strange phrase, for they were afraid of... and then it stops. And it's usually tidied up a bit in English translations, for they were afraid or for they feared, but it suddenly ends in the middle of a sentence and it ends on this note of fear whereas Mark's whole theme is to get from fear to faith. And that raises a question. What happened to the rest of the story? Why isn't Mark nicely rounded off? Why, above all, are there no accounts of the appearances of Jesus after his resurrection in Mark's Gospel? There's only the empty tomb and the finding of that empty tomb, but there's no mention of Jesus actually meeting them, which is very strange in a Gospel. Well, there are three possibilities at least. One, that Mark meant to finish on this uncertain note and, and leave the ending open. I think that's highly unlikely. It would be a very strange ending. It simply says, the women said nothing to anyone for they were afraid of. What an extraordinary thing to say at the end of a gospel of good news. Second possibility is that Mark was actually prevented from finishing. Something interrupted his writing. He was suddenly arrested or taken off and the manuscript was never completed. The third possibility is that the ending has been lost in some way, that the ending has been torn off, that the manuscript was mutilated, or even it's just possible that Peter tore the end off. You remember this is really Peter's Gospel. It's a record, a record of his preaching about Jesus and we know that one of the most important resurrection appearances was to Peter. We don't know where it was or when it was, but the first, the very first appearance to a man was to Peter. And there's no record of it. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, Peter thought it was so precious and so intimate and so personal that he didn't want any account of that to go out. We don't know. When we get to heaven, we'll have to ask. We'll probably be not interested then. 
But people do ask, what happened? Well, we don't know, but what has happened is that other endings have been added. And in some Bibles you'll find one ending and in others another. One is short, one is long, and they're simply known as the shorter or the longer ending. Somebody else has completed Mark's Gospel so that we've got a complete story. The long one, which is usually in your Bible from verse 9 to verse 20, uh, 20 yes, the longer one balances fear with faith, though it does tell us that the disciples didn't even believe when they saw. But it does include some remarkable statements of Jesus which people don't like and therefore want to cast doubts about the longer ending. For example, Jesus talks about tongues here. It's the only recorded instance where Jesus mentions that his followers would speak in tongues and also cast out demons, heal the sick, and pick up snakes and not be harmed, which happened to St. Paul in Malta, incidentally. And so people don't like this. Also, there's a statement there that Jesus made baptism in water essential to salvation. He says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. And people don't like that. So there have been questions cast. Well, though it was probably not Mark who wrote it, at least it was someone in the early church, and therefore that longer ending reflects how the early church believed that Jesus ended it all, and includes things from other Gospels. There's a little bit about the road to Emmaus in here, there's a little bit about Matthew's commission in here, so it looks as if somebody has just picked out various elements from the other Gospels, put them together, and rounded off Mark that way. But when we get to heaven, we can ask all about it, and we'll find out exactly what did happen. But I believe that longer ending is validly part of the Word of God, and does reflect the early Christian understanding, if it doesn't reflect Mark's actual words from Peter. Well, that concludes our study in Mark. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.